Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Father, this morning we confess as your people that your law is perfect, reviving our souls. Your testimony is sure, making wise the otherwise simple. Your precepts are right, rejoicing our hearts. And your commandment is pure, enlightening our eyes. The fear of you is clean, enduring forever. Your rules are true and righteous altogether. And now as your word is proclaimed today, we pray that the Spirit would use the vessel proclaiming the ears hearing as a means of grace this day, that our souls might be enlightened to the knowledge of the glory of God revealed in the pages of your inerrant, infallible, and eternal Scripture. I pray that as you are behold, held by the hearer and proclaimed this morning from the pulpit, that we would realize afresh that in your Scriptures are contained gold, much fine gold. Indeed, your law is more perfect and more precious than gold refined in the furnace, fine gold, more valuable still and more desirable to the palate than the drippings of the honeycomb, because only by your scriptures are your servants warned, and only in keeping them is great reward. And as the Spirit has worked in our hearts salvation, and so now, desiring to obey you, the fruit of our souls changed is laid out, Lord, in a pathway unto glory. We recognize that in this way and in this way alone is great reward, even unto eternal life. We thank you, Lord, for, this goal, for the goal and purpose of what you have done on Calvary, dear Jesus. The calling to be conformed into the image of you, our Savior, from glory to glory. We pray that you would use this day and the proclamation of your word so that by the close of this sermon and the application of the same this week, we may look that much more like you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. What a precious gift. What a great privilege and opportunity it is for us to worship the Lord together. As we have done so in prayer and done so in song, I encourage you to open your scriptures with me and let us behold God's word as we worship him by giving our attention to the authority and the revelation revealed in God's scripture. We'll turn to Genesis 47 this morning as we continue in our series chronicling the life of Jacob, God's work and purposes through the patriarch, his sons Joseph and the 11 brothers as well. And now they are reunited in Egypt itself and they will appear before Pharaoh as they take up refuge in this foreign land to save them and provide, uh, provide the necessary means of survival in great calamity, even famine itself. Today our message is entitled Blessings in Egypt. In spite of famine, in spite of a foreign country, in spite of the promises of God, which held out Canaan land as the place of plenty and blessing, Nevertheless, in God's providence and order of things in covenant history, we find that the people of God are greatly blessed, even under less than ideal circumstances, to say the least. This morning's message has an aim that is to magnify the grace of God in spite of hardship, to draw from the text encouragement for our own Egypt experience, if you will, even the intermediate time between now and glory, in which we are often face, facing hardships, trials, and enemies. The scriptures today give us great encouragement in the face of whatever we might have in front of us today as we see the overcoming power and mercy of our Lord guiding the covenant family to Egypt and blessing them along the way. With that introduction in your heart standing in reverence for the word of God, would you rise as you're able for the hearing of God's scripture? Listen as the word of God is proclaimed to you. Listen and bow your souls before its authority as we begin in Genesis 47. We'll read 1 through 17. Here is the word of God. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he, Joseph, took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. 
They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. 5. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land and the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph bought the money into, brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. 17. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As you recall in chapter 46, towards the end, Joseph is giving instructions to his brothers in anticipation before a meeting in the courts of Pharaoh. In verse 32, the man and the shepherds, or backing up to 31, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, they are keepers of livestock, and so forth. Further instructions for the brothers comes by way of verse 33. Joseph says, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, we are servants, we have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers. And here's the purpose, the strategy, 34, closes with this. Joseph says, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So, In the context of our passage today, the time has come. The time has come to approach the courts of Pharaoh, the great king. The king that held out hope for survival through famine because Joseph, under his administration, had gathered up the foodstuffs during the seven years of plenty and stored them. So now all who wish to survive this time must bow before Pharaoh, must submit themselves to his graces, his mercy, and must also submit to Joseph and therefore be fed by the storehouses that he has in the land. Naturally speaking, it's hard to imagine a more intimidating set of circumstances for Jacob and his sons to detail. I'll save one detail, excuse me. Most negotiations are entered with one party having what they perceive to be some leverage. I have so much money, and the other party says, well, I have this good and service that you desire. So there's kind of a shared reciprocity, and there's Leverage that is used to come to terms. This is not the situation here. What leverage do the people desperate for food have? Absolutely none. We see that later in the passage. So much so that eventually if you continue to read, we find that they sell themselves literally into servanthood, slavery, to the Lord of the land in exchange for the promise of food. Nothing to offer, no leg to stand on. Desperate for the good mercy Of the king, that's all they have to place their hope in. So facing imminent starvation, the tribe of Israel is no exception. Jacob and his sons, desperate for provision, have traveled great lengths. Despite age, in the case of Jacob, 130 years, crude provisions, they're just a nomadic tribe. This would have been a long journey for them, especially with everyone in the household and all of their provisions. 
loaded up in the carts that Joseph provided, herding their flocks in front of them. And here they are seeking refuge in Egypt. They finally crossed the border and have entered into this strange land. Imagine Jacob. He may be thinking of his grandfather's experience under similar circumstances. Chapter 12 records that a famine had occurred in the land. And so Abraham sought refuge under uh, the Pharaoh at the time. Didn't work out so well. He lied that his wife was indeed his sister so as to escape uh, the potential of him being killed so that a man or Pharaoh himself might steal his wife. These are the kinds of intimidating circumstances and possible risks you take when you enter into a foreign land like this. Jacob, no doubt, is shaking in his sandals. Save the confidence he may have gleaned by that altar moment in Beersheba where the Lord assured him that Emmanuel promise, I will be with you and guide you wherever you go. Still, now the test is upon him. Jacob, remembering the past, both God's visitation and perhaps the experience of his grandfather as well, recognizing he has little to offer and little to lose, nevertheless proceeds to the the courts of Pharaoh. However, there is one thing that changes the dynamic, and that is the fact that Joseph has been sent before. The saving grace in their case came by way of an ambassador, a mediator, a called covenant son to go before them and prepare the way. Joseph was sent ahead in the providence of God to prepare for the covenant family, to save the line of the Messiah and to intercede on their behalf before the powers that be. As a result, Jacob's household is welcomed by Pharaoh. He entrusts even the care of his flocks to their stewardship. In the mercy and genius of God, Pharaoh, having greatly benefited from the wisdom and stewardship of Joseph with respect to the food of Egypt, is pleased to appoint his own family to manage additional aspects of his holdings as well. Against all odds, blessings pour down upon the house of Jacob, even in exile, even in an age of famine. This favor of the Lord and with Pharaoh is immediately evident as Jacob and company meet, you could say, the Lord of the Lord of the land. Jacob's brothers, or Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers, were already greatly intimidated before the Lord of the land, second in command of Pharaoh, not knowing who he was, Joseph himself, but now they're meeting somebody greater still, the Lord of the Lord of the land, Pharaoh. And so this kind of sets the stage and the context, the background, for our, the events that we read in our text today. Let me give you a heading, and let's explore the interaction between three different uh, parties today, or three different interactions. Moses, the author of Genesis, documents a meaningful exchange between the following. First of all, the brothers and Pharaoh, verses 1 through 6. Secondly, there's a meaningful exchange documented between Jacob and Pharaoh, verses 7 through 10. And finally, there's an exchange, if you will, between the people of the land ordinary Egyptians and Pharaoh. And also under this third point, we could recognize the price of provision. So that's our outline today. First of all, considering this documentation of a meaningful exchange between the brothers and Pharaoh, what is intended to be conveyed and what might we learn from this exchange between Pharaoh and Joseph's brothers? Verse 1, 47. Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds, and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. You can see right from the onset that depending on how the heart of the king is wired, he could have reacted in any number of ways. Naturally speaking, a selfish and petulant, jealous and fearful guarded and insecure ruler might have said, oh, you're already in the land of Goshen? I had no idea that this was going to happen. How dare anybody step foot on my realm without my permission? This is presumptuous of you. Send them back to Canaan. The last thing I will have is anybody encroaching upon my borders without permission. He did not react this way. Why? Because Joseph had had, uh, favor with Pharaoh and the way was prepared. Joseph and Pharaoh had a relationship a close one, in fact. And this is an example of the mighty hand of God subduing the hearts of kings according to his sovereign will. 
I use that phrase, a mighty hand, because that mighty hand of God is seen in another time and in another Pharaoh 400-some years later. And this Pharaoh is not so merciful, and he does not have a good relationship with the people of God. The opposite is, in fact, the case. And this is the time, of course, in Exodus 3, where God calls Moses, raises him up, another covenant son, and says, go confront this Pharaoh and bring him my word, let my people go, and show him my wonders as I prove who is the one true sovereign. This was the mighty hand of God in judgment over the usurper of his throne. However, in our text, we see the mighty hand of God in subduing the heart of the king by a relationship and favor and welcoming in and giving privilege and blessing and a place of prominence, even the best of the land, to the covenant people of God. Reminds us of a principle that we have applied even in our day from uh, prior considerations of this dynamic, and that is this. Your state, your governor, your society, your community, your heart, what is it a sanctuary for? We've asked this question, what is Minnesota a sanctuary state for? You can judge the standing of a society by the answer to that question. Is Minnesota seeking to be a sanctuary state for the people of God, for the will of the sovereign? Are they granting a deference and respect to the proclamation of the word of God, or are they a sanctuary state? for young people seeking transgender surgeries in spite of what their parents might, and more than this, what God says is right and wrong and according to his created order. Well, we find today that the second is the case. How about in the case of abortion? Has our governor ruled that this state will be a place where women can terminate the life of an unborn, pre-born baby within her womb, the most precious and innocent since conception of, God, of creatures made in the image of God? Yes, we've extended sanctuary status to the wickedness. And thus, where do we stand as a people, as a society, and as a land? Deserving of the hand of blessing poured out because we're welcoming the will of God and his people? or the hand of judgment, the heavy hand, because we've obstinately resisted his testimony in the day in which we live. This is an application that we can draw from the text and pray that we would be faithful to. We must always be ready, like Moses, to boldly stand when asked a reason for the hope within, to not capitulate when we know that the word of God is against the grain of the culture or the leadership that is in power today. But we must also pray, and we can pray, that God would soften and change the hearts of kings and people in authority. As the word says, like a stream of water in his hand, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Has the Lord not turned your own heart? Do you think it's a more difficult challenge for God to soften the heart of a rebel like you than it is a rebel in a place of authority? It is not. The same Holy Spirit sovereignly draws and irresistibly calls by the power of God's sovereign grace, the lost, unto repentance and faith. God can do that very thing. A pastor friend of mine, you know him probably as well. If you're familiar with Lifespring Church in Crosby, Eric Anderson went with another pastor in our kind of broader ministry network and delivered a, a letter, an open letter, and a direct letter to Tim Walls recently, our governor in this state. And this letter documented by the word of God where he and his duty in calling before the Lord has fallen short and embraced wickedness instead of upholding righteousness. Those two pastor, pastors called him to repentance and said, God in his mercy has delayed his judgment. However, you will answer for your actions. There is time to turn. Repent of this wickedness and turn to Jesus Christ. Pray that that word would stick in the heart of, the, of this leader in our land that he might turn to the Lord. And that God might tilt the palm, so to speak, and change the heart direction of leaders in our day as a stream of water in his hand, so that his heavy hand of judgment might become his hand of blessing as he changes the hearts of kings and people in positions of authority. Joseph served as mediator and advocate, interceding on his family's behalf. He was appealing to the goodwill of the most powerful of kings at the time. And this testimony would greatly encourage, no doubt, Moses later when he was called to do the same. That is, interact with the person in authority on behalf of the will and purposes of God. He did so faithfully. Sometimes God displays his wonders by subduing the hearts of kings who bow before his rule and confess 
confess that they are second in command to him. Nebuchadnezzar comes to mind. Other times his power is magnified in their spectacular destruction. In the wake of his judgments, as his mighty hand proves that he is king of kings and lord of lords and breaks the knees of his enemies and smashes them across the landscape of history as a cheap clay pot connected to his iron rod that will one day bring decisive and ultimate judgment. Where will the king stand? Where will we stand? The only way to be assured his mercy is to have a mediator who goes between. As Joseph served to prepare the way before the king and the people, we see here a parallel. Jesus Christ mediates between us and the one true king of kings and sovereign, the Lord and uh, God the Father. And as he does so, the blessings of heaven pour out on those who submit to him and trust his leadership and direction to pave the way. So the brothers and Pharaoh illustrate these kinds of things. They illustrate things to pray for and advocate for as far as his sovereignty proclaimed in a land in rebellion, that they might turn and humble themselves. And also how God will use a covenant son mediator to prepare the way for his people, reminding us in the shadow and foreshadow of Christ to come. The brothers trusted Joseph's judgments. The brothers display a remarkable degree of faith in the judgment of their little brother, second to youngest. This was surprising and illustrates a change of heart in the family. Joseph was despised because of the prophecy that said he would one day rule over his brothers and even have some authority over his father and mother. We recount the dreams all the way back earlier in Genesis. But now, fulfillment of these dreams is upon us as the brothers defer to Joseph. And we see them following his instructions. He had said, say this to Pharaoh, What is your occupation? Pharaoh asked, and dutifully his brothers respond, Your servants are shepherds, as our Pharaohs were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn, that is to travel, in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And then they ask, Now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. The brothers display a remarkable degree of deference to the wisdom and the leadership of their younger brother. He had instructed them to introduce themselves as shepherds, despite the fact that shepherds are despised in Egypt. The last verse in the prior chapter had indicated as much. But his wisdom is vindicated as the brothers obey, and nevertheless, deferring to him and his wisdom and authority, they proceed and thus fulfill the prophetic call of Joseph ages ago, now as he rules and reigns in Egypt, and as he uses his position to prepare a way for the family. How often are God's directives and God's will counterintuitive to the wisdom of man? There are times when we read the scriptures and we think that doesn't match our experience, but you can always trust in them, and you can't trust your own perception and your own wisdom. We have the benefit when we read God's word of a revelation from one who is omniscient, who sees and knows all, is omnipotent, who is all-powerful, and can be trusted, whether we're in prison for a time, waiting for God to liberate us and fulfill His command and call uh, ages or uh, so many years before, 20 years prior in the case of Joseph, or whether right now we feel like the kingdom of God could almost be quenched by all of the wickedness that surrounds us with its claustrophobic demands to bow before the wickedness of our hour. Nevertheless, we must trust what the Word of God says, that he will equip with a mighty hand his church to be a consistent testimony on his behalf. And as Joseph was an ambassador of Jesus Christ, so we are today with a greater revelation still to bring the knowledge of the truth of the only gospel that saves and the consequences if you don't surrender to a world that is darkened in sin and is ripe for for the judgments of God. Let us remember these things, the greater wisdom and the greater power of our King Jesus, the sufficiency and the authority of his word. And let us draw inspiration from Joseph, who in spite of hardship, stood confidently upon these truths as well, and found at the final test, at the end of the day, if you will, that God's word is more powerful than the greatest of emperors. We also see, as the brothers and Pharaoh interact, 
that a basic obedience to the first commandment, to take dominion, to be good stewards of what God has blessed you with by way of holdings, property, in their case, flocks, in our case, an application might be our families, you know, financial decisions, what he has blessed us with. This is dominion breeding favor. In other words, because of the brothers, their integrity and duty and their vocational calling might have woken up day after day, thought, well, I got to stare at the rear end of sheep again today. Got to smell that dung of the livestock in the fields of my father. It's going to be 90 degrees in the land of Canaan. We haven't seen rain for weeks. They could despise that call. Nevertheless, they were faithful. They were shepherds like their fathers before them. And in their faithfulness and in their dedication to this call, we find one day they stand before kings and the king defers to them, recognizing their vocation. He says, let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. What a surprising turn of events. We're nothing but shepherds. Shepherds are despised in Egypt. There's a famine in the land. You can't get much more humiliated than this. And suddenly these brothers find themselves standing before this great king. And he says, what is your job? What do you do for a living? They say, we watch sheep. We're shepherds. Really? Well, I trust your brother. I see the evidence of God's spirit in him. And you being his family members and he and you coming to me on his good recommendation. I'll put you in charge of all my flocks and all my holdings. This is dominion breeding favor. It was said of Jesus himself that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Young people, you're preparing to step into greater roles of responsibility as you come of age. Some of you young men might be learning your father's skill and vocation. You may not be excited to wake up early in the morning and go learn how to be a contractor, an electrician. You may not be excited about re-roofing a house when it's 90 degrees outside, and I don't blame you have been there and done that. However, as you're faithful to these things and see it as your duty before the Lord, and even embrace the vocational call as worship unto him and follow him, one day that dominion just might earn you favor with God and with man in surprising kinds of ways. And the Lord might call on you, and it might all of a sudden come to your attention that being faithful in the little things has prepared me to be faithful in greater. And you'll see this principle unfolding in your own life as the book of Proverbs instructs and as the testimony of Joseph and his brothers is available for us to see. National hospitality has been expended, extended to the people of God because why? They are trustworthy, they have integrity, and therefore the royal flocks are now in their charge. They receive the best of the land in the form of Goshen, Blessings pour out upon them. Recognizing the vocational stewardship and integrity of the people, later this principle would be proclaimed again, Jeremiah 29, a time of exile would happen again, but the instructions were similar. And go and seek the welfare of the city. Uh, go ahead and plant gardens, raise flocks if you're able. Trade with your neighbors and have children in faith. And as your goodwill is recognized by your neighbors, so your influence and favor in that era, area will grow. And so even in more harsher exile conditions still, in Babylon, hauled in chains there, so the young men who listened to Jeremiah, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they witnessed the same principle coming true, the dominion breeding favor, responsibility, and integrity, earning for them an opportunity to share the word of God with kings and also to thrive, even though they were called to honor the Lord in an era of exile. Joseph's ministry to Egypt had advanced from humble beginnings, enslaved to Potiphar, and in management later of the royal prison. But now his administration has extended to all Egypt and beyond. His dominion had bred favor with the king. And now the covenant family will join him in this calling as they tend to the livestock holding of Pharaoh, they become his trusted shepherds. Their presence in the land and their productivity will be a blessing to Pharaoh, and they will be blessed as a result. So this is the meaningful exchange, a few things that we can glean in these first six verses as the brothers interact with Pharaoh. And now Jacob stands in his courts. Second point. Moses documents a meaningful exchange between, Moses, or between Jacob and Pharaoh. Verse 7 then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. 
Sometimes it pays to kind of read over a passage over and over again. If you do that, sometimes it occurs to you, wait, that's a surprising detail. I think this is a good example. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Well, you just keep reading and not think twice. But this is sort of a surprising detail. Isn't, doesn't it make more sense to read Pharaoh blessed Jacob? What possibly does Jacob have to offer? He's a destitute tribe, small in number, seeking refuge from famine. And he's at the mercy of where the provisions to survive are. Nevertheless, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the year, days of the years of your life? Jacob, illustrating his own humiliated status to some degree, answers, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not attained the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. Jacob is not super confident. He's not a boastful man. He's old, he's weary, and he's probably struggled with depression, certainly off and on his whole life. And very negative you know, situations have been suffered in his family, oftentimes as a result, as he says here, his spiritual failings and weak leadership. Nevertheless, verse 10 repeats this surprising detail. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out of the presence of Pharaoh. We have two things going on here. On the one hand, Jacob, externally speaking, and by way of legacy, does not have really a leg to stand on or much to boast. He's not rich in an age of famine, and he's not impressive compared to an emperor of the day. His 130 years have been dedicated to pretty much survival, and they've been marked by a lot of trial, trauma, hardship, and persecution. And now here he is at the mercy of this great king once again. Admittedly, I don't have really much to offer. I'm not an impressive person who stands in your presence. Nevertheless, we find in this patriarch, he is serving in a priestly role. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. In blessing Pharaoh, we can assume Absolutely, he would call on Yahweh, the one true God. And in this sense, he is praying for a king in a, in a position, and one in a position of authority. There is sort of a juxtaposition between Jacob realizing in and of himself and in his flesh he is nothing. However, there is a calling, an appointment, that he would be the patriarch and represent the will of God in raising up the next generation who would one day bring the Messiah. Jacob has been the heir of the oral tradition of the word of God. And he may not be much to look at, but he knows the one who has been with him on the journey, who has visited him at Beersheba, who has opened up the heavens to show him a bridge between him and glory, which later would be fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus Christ at Bethel, the house of God. Jacob has had dreams that illustrated to him the sovereign hand of the Almighty is guiding and directing his humble and otherwise unworthy footsteps in a way that will glorify the Lord. So Jacob understands at least this much. I am a patriarch and I have a priestly duty. His grandfather Abraham had been commanded, he, uh, the Lord commanded Abimelech. He said, go to Abraham. Abraham came to you as the inferior. He was intimidated by you. But I, recognizing my delegation of authority and importance on this covenant family, have struck you guys uh, uh, with infirmity until you pray. He is a prophet on your behalf. And so what did Abraham do? As a patriarch, he stood in this priestly role and he interceded on behalf of Abimelech and the Lord answered his prayer and this foreign king was blessed. Abraham later intercedes for Sodom and as he does so, he's communicating with God himself. All of these, Jacob and Abraham and other examples in the Old Testament scriptures, though weak and foolish and unworthy in and of themselves are a foreshadowing of a perfect covenant son priest to come. That is Jesus Christ. As Jacob blesses Pharaoh, it's a surprising detail, but it reminds us of Abraham praying for Abimelech. It is a preliminary fulfillment of a priest to come without whose intercession we cannot receive the bread of life. And the famine of our sin and the judgment it deserves will be the death of us all unless a covenant son, a priest, prays for us. Jacob is something of a suffering servant. Though few and evil, a pitiful legacy he has to boast, nevertheless, he blesses Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is blessed as God answers the prayer of the mediating servant. Not realizing the greater scope of God's purposes through covenant, one might look at this and say, well, it's sort of a pitiful 
example of one groveling before a greater king and could be easily dismissed. But God did not easily dismiss the prayer of Jacob. No, the unlikely, the humble, the unassuming actually has been gifted and anointed by the Lord for his will and purposes. In Matthew chapter 2, there is a toddler. His name is Jesus Christ. He is unassuming and weak. His father has been given, earthly father Joseph, instructions to seek refuge where in Egypt. Why? Because Herod, the king, has the power to destroy and had legislated a genocide on the area such that every child under two would be killed by his wicked hand. The Lord saves Jesus. Now, Jesus hardly looked to, hardly much to look at. The scriptures say even as an adult, he wasn't very impressive. But through the eyes of faith, God brought foreign dignitaries, men of importance and prominence from the east, to come and to worship before the greater king. And before they left to go back, they defied the authority of Herod and refused to go back to his courts, instead went by another way. Why? Because Jesus, Lord at his birth, who is welcomed by a myriad, the hosts of glory, the angels who told the shepherds who it was, their eyes likewise, like the shepherds, had been opened, that although this child appears unassuming on the surface, God's authority is invested in this one. This is the incarnate second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And unless he intercedes for you, there is no hope of dying without going to hell. The suffering servant Jacob, though unassuming on the surface, prayed, and as he did so, he served something as a foreshadowing of Christ. Though unassuming in some ways, nevertheless, he would be the great intercessor and the mediator, and he would be the covenant son called to lead his people out of exile, and in spite of the judgment they deserve, to save them unto eternal life. What kind of blessings did God pour out in answer to Jacob's prayer? Well, God had already been pouring them out and the diligence of his son Joseph, elevating Egypt to a place of global prominence and influence at the time as they were the one lone holdout that could get the surrounding nations and the known world through this calamity. Egypt was blessed economically. Just as Laban thrived under Jacob's stewardship of his flocks of old, now Pharaoh would thrive under the stewardship of Jacob's sons and their shepherding call in Goshen. The influence of Egypt reached throughout the region, and Joseph's administration became famous in the land. Natural resources, in the case of the flocks and all of the wealth of Egypt, poured into the coffers of the Pharaoh. The testimony, this would be the greatest blessing of all, of covenant assured hope for all peoples through the seed of Abraham that was kept alive through the children of Jacob and would for generations until Jesus Christ came. This testimony of covenant hope assured in this tribe who was called out to be a light to the nations, that message came to Egypt and proclaimed the hope of salvation in a Messiah to come. And the hospitality, the opening up the welcome doors of the boundaries, the borders of Egypt, to the message of hope in a Messiah to be born through this family to come, allowed the gospel to be proclaimed in that land, such that hundreds of years later, a mixed multitude came out of the land. Egyptians themselves were converted to the one true God. And the testimony of these missionaries, if you will, was used to soften the hearts and to turn from Osiris and Pharaoh and worshiping grain and cattle and all these ridiculous gods that you know, made up the pantheon of this pagan society. So that is the substantial blessing that came in answer to Jacob's prayer. Final point this morning. We're documenting, following Moses, record of these events, a meaningful exchange before the brothers and Pharaoh, Jacob and Pharaoh, and finally, the people of Egypt and Pharaoh. This illustrates, I submit, the price of provision. What happens as the famine continues into the fifth, sixth, and seventh year, things go from bad to worse, not for those who dwell in Goshen, but for everyone else. They will lose their land, their wealth, their livestock, and even their freedom. Now, there was no food in the land, for 13, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, 
in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph again and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought this livestock in to Joseph. Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. What we have here, as we examine the, con the context, is a contrast. What was the cost of provision for the people of God versus the cost of provision for the rest of Egypt? Well, the cost of provision for the people of God was mercy and grace. What payment did Pharaoh demand for leasing Goshen? It would end up being for centuries. What payment did Pharaoh demand for giving food to the tribe of Israel? What payment did he demand for them uh, to be welcomed into his nation and to stay and to be blessed? The answer is nothing. The cost of salvation for the people of God was the grace and mercy of the sovereign, if you will. Here is illustrated in the text the difference, uh, the cost of provision eternally. You either pay for it by your own means until you get to the end and you have nothing and it's proven that neither your flocks nor your money is insufficient and in the end you're in worse off still. You pay for your sin by becoming an enslaved to it or God does a miracle through a mediator and you receive grace upon grace as we have sung about today. And in spite of your weak and weariness, the fact that you don't have $2 to your name and that you're not very impressive at all and have no leg to stand on and leverage before the sovereign, God extends through Jesus Christ the mediator grace to you such that the cost of provision of abundant life is already paid by another. We have remarked how Joseph remarkably mirrors the coming Christ. What was the cost of provision for the people of God in the land of Egypt? Well, in some sense, it was the suffering of Joseph. If he had not been condemned to prison, falsely accused, if he had not suffered in that dungeon on account of what the evil men around him were doing, then he would not have heard the Pharaoh's dreams by way of his servants, interpreted them, and then advanced to second in the land as a consequence. The cost of the provisions of these moments here were already paid by the hardship that Joseph endured. So now, when the people of God, through this mediating ministry of Jesus, or Joseph, excuse me, enter into the promise, enter into Egypt, they are welcomed graciously and mercy and mercifully because the cost is already paid. This pictures to us that the cost of eternal provision is according to the covenant and the grace of the Lord. And the payment that Jesus Christ has already paid on our behalf. He is, in this sense, the greater Joseph and the fulfillment of these pictures. He secures for us the price of provision in his bloodshed and in his broken body. This is sufficient payment for every single one of the elect who will be gathered in to the storehouses of glory in the final day. Next week is Communion Sunday, and in the elements that will be spread before us will be pictured the cost of provision unto eternal life. Rescue, salvation from the famine of sin. And so let us remember this with eyes even more open greater, uh, to greater realize and appreciate what this means, even in light of the shadow and, and the types that went before us in the days of Joseph, Pharaoh, and his brothers, the covenant family in Genesis 47. Meanwhile, the people are crying out for daily bread, are they not? <clears throat> Give us our daily bread. There's no food in the land. Famine was so severe. The people are, are going before the king, and these are unbelievers, we presume, of course, pagans dwelling in the land of Egypt. They're offering their, their prayers, their appeal, and their desperate cry to the sovereign, to the government, the one who is the most powerful in their imagination and the highest conceivable source. And so, and rather than the model that we have, in the Lord's Prayer, which we recited this morning, give us, we direct our prayers to God, our daily bread. They direct these prayers, so to speak, to the sovereign, to Pharaoh, and he gives, through Joseph, an answer, quote-unquote, if you will, to their prayers, but at great cost. 
Who receives these prayers? Give us this day our daily bread. That is our de facto sovereign. Who do we trust to provide for our needs? It's very clear in the case of the covenant family that God had ordered and organized the circumstances. If he had not sent Joseph ahead, there would have been no bread to share. For the Egyptians, famine eventually induced their own debt slavery, and it marked this era. The government that they sought salvation from ended up enslaving them. This, of course, is an axiom for all of time and history. If we place our hope and appeal to the greatest sovereign that we can imagine in our own mere human experience, we are idolaters. And in the end, it, yield, it, it doesn't get us salvation, but slavery. Without the blessings of God and our daily bread, the social order of liberty and responsibility outlined in His law and in our lives is reduced to dependent subservience. And we become the easy prey of tyrants, and God's judgment comes by sucking all of the life, all of the freedom, and all of the liberty out of the society as He gives us what we deserve until we choke on our idolatry. This was the price of provision for the people in contrast to the price of provision for the people of God. Which will it be for us? Will we seek salvation and mercy through the highest conceivable power by mere human terms? Or will we continue to pray before our meals each day? Oh Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Thank you for providing this meal for us. And I repent of my anxiety and my trust in things other than you, in your sovereign hand, in your mercy, for taking care of even the practical daily things that we need to survive. We are not in a famine right now as the people of God because God has been merciful to us and has provided us food and given us what we need each day. And so we ought to acknowledge that, and to remember that in our own prayers, following the model of Jesus, give us this day our daily bread. Meanwhile, something profound is going on. As the people are decreasing, their flocks are being confiscated, their wealth is all going into the coffers of Egypt. As the people lose their own liberty eventually and become slaves of the state, where are these flocks and herds going? And this is another, or there's an implicit answer to the question in the text. Don't you remember what Pharaoh had said? You, Joseph's brothers, why don't you be in charge of all my flocks? So imagine, as the people turn in their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, and so forth, to the Pharaoh, they're marched and herded right where? Into the land of Goshen. This is a similar dynamic to the time when Jacob was enslaved, in some degree, to his uh, father-in-law, Laban, in Paddan Aram. There, Laban put him in charge of his flocks, and he, they came to a deal in the spotted and blemished and so forth, Jacob was allowed to keep, and those flocks greatly influenced. Thus, in spite of exile, and in spite of being under the thumb to some degree of Laban, Jacob greatly increased. So much so that at a certain point, this, you know, dominion, uh, breeding favor, and great blessing became an intimidating reality to Laban. And they began to distance themselves from him and say, he's threatening to become greater than us. In spite of the famine, in spite of the wicked land in which they dwelt, Jacob greatly increased. Flocks and herds uh, surrendered for rations were herded straight to Goshen as Jacob was commissioned through his sons to tend for to Pharaoh's flocks. In spite of the foreign land and famine, Jacob prospers, reminiscent of his prosperity under Laban, chapter 30, 42, an increase in spite of famine and hardship by way of a great despoiling. A great despoiling. What does despoiling mean? Well, it's when all the wealth is taken uh, and it's removed, it's confiscated from the people, it's forcefully, uh, or in this case, under duress, surrendered. And there would be a great despoiling in the future as well. In other words, if anyone stands presumptuously to say, I'm going to worship things other than Yahweh, or if I trust in a sovereign other than the one true God, there comes a day of reckoning and a great despoiling of the unbeliever, the wicked society, and the enemies of God's people and ultimately him of himself. And this happened under Moses as well. There was a great despoiling as the mighty hand of God showed his wonders to the people, and the wealth of the people began to flow into the, the camps of the people of God. And when they left, they left with, as I said before, a mixed multitude of Egyptians who had converted 
and great storehouses of gold, and great stores, if you will, of gold and silver and precious things. These were used in the dedication and ornamentation of the temple, the tabernacle, and they became a testimony of the tro and trophies to God's sovereign power. Now, in the moment, if you're a slave, if you're under the heavy hand of a tyrant, if you're forced against your will and conscripted into hard labor and servitude, it's hard to see, it's hard to imagine yourself serving the greater authority still. But we can trust, as Joseph did in prison, and as the few we trust, remnant faithful did even under Pharaoh's tyranny, and as Moses did when he obediently followed the Lord and brought the truth to the kingdom of the kingdom of God and his purposes through his covenant and his plan to subdue his enemies, as he brought that to bear to the people of the time who are in authority as Pharaoh himself, that God will show his mighty hand. God will show his mighty hand in our day. And even though we may feel insignificant, illegitimate, 130 years and weak and weary has been the sojourning of the church, we might lament. But we serve a greater sovereign. We serve a greater king. And he has sent his son to mediate on behalf of our own sin and to supply through his work on Calvary eternal life, bread unto heaven one day. And he will assert his authority and dominance over every single king, every single authority, and every godless, unrepentant usurper of his throne. So we must be faithful to trust that that is true, to be reminded of the hope we have in Christ, and to be mindful of the record and the monument of these things through the pages of Scripture so that we might be found faithful when the Lord comes and visits us with his mighty hand of either repentance or judgment. Nevertheless, may his glory be known, his people be saved, and his kingdom advance by his mighty power. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the great encouragement we can glean from the pages of Scripture. As we read this account, we are reading history that unfolded according to your sovereign will in time and in place. We are reading, Lord Jesus, the exploits of the Almighty and saving a people in spite of themselves by your grace and your mercy, by preserving your will to save all of your own when the Messiah would eventually come from the line of Jacob. By doing so in spite of kings and people in authority that as of yet are at enmity with you and have not bowed and surrendered to the King of Kings. We pray in our day, Lord, that we would be faithful, trusting that we have a sufficient mediator to go before us in Jesus, trusting that he will provide for us our daily bread, our daily needs, and also that he will assert his authority in due time such that all his enemies will become a footstool for his feet, either by repentance and faith or by final judgment on that great day. Give us grace, mercy, strength, and obedience, Lord, in the meantime, to proclaim these truths and to be confident that we worship and serve the Almighty and that He will rule and reign forever without end. Hallelujah and amen.